Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. About a year and a half ago, I made a post on Instagram um, talking about a movie that I had really enjoyed. And within three minutes, a buddy of mine from college DM'd me and he said, dude, that movie broke me and I couldn't stop crying. Now, this is surprising to me for two different reasons. One, I am usually the guy that says, dude, that movie broke me and I couldn't stop crying. And I, and I really didn't cry in, in that movie. And two, because this buddy of mine has always been the guy that says, I don't do emotions. And when people say, I don't do emotions, what they usually mean is, I don't cry, as if tears are somehow the only proof that emotions exist, right? Which is just silly. Like, we all have emotions. They exist. They show up in different ways. And I was, and I was just confused by it. And, 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 like, even when we were in college, we would watch movies like Saving Private Ryan and Gladiator and Braveheart, Return of the King, all of which I openly wept at. And he was just like, man, that was a good movie. Like, just really stoic. When the movie Up came out, okay, look, I reached out to him, and I'm like, bro, did you see Up? And he goes, yeah, it was so good. I'm like, did you cry? And he goes, what? No. And I'm like, how do you, how do you not cry it up? Like, I borderline needed therapy after the first 10 minutes. Like, I'm like, how, I don't understand. And he's, he's like, I mean, I get why people would. It's just not who I am. So when he tells me that the movie Encanto broke him, I went, what? Now, if you've never seen Encanto, great movie. It's a good movie. Um, it tells the story of, of the Madrigal family, and they live in a magical casita in Colombia, and most of the family members have, like, supernatural gifts that help the family and help the community, everyone except for the main protagonist, Mirabel. And about two-thirds of the way through the movie, like, the magic is failing, the family is fractured, the casita is falling apart, and the grandmother's actions and reactions up to this point have really made it seem like it's all been Mirabelle's fault. And my buddy said, like, when that whole scene was happening, he goes, I felt a lump in my throat for the first time, and I'm like, what is this? Like, what do I do with this? And he goes, and it just stayed there until the end of the movie. And the end of the movie, like, it resolves, and the family comes together, and they're singing a lovely song, and they're rebuilding the casita, and the town comes. And he said, dude, there was this line that the grandmother sings that when she said the words, I just couldn't stop. Like every emotion that existed in me started coming out to the point that it freaked my wife and kids out because they've never seen me like show that kind of emotion. And the line of that song said this, the miracle is not some magic that you've got. The miracle is you, not some gift, just you. And he said, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) About seven weeks later, he reached out and he said, hey, I wanted to follow up and keep you up to date on what's going on with my long-lasting effects of watching a Disney movie. Um, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, tell me, man. And he's, a, he's actually a pastor in Kentucky. They have an uh, on-staff counselor, and he goes, me and so-and-so, we've been meeting multiple times a week just trying to unpack, like, what the heck, what is this? And he goes, and I think I've, I've been able to get to a point where I can identify um, something that I've always believed to be true about myself, but I don't know if I've ever been able to admit And that's that I I just don't think I've ever felt like I'm good enough at anything in my entire life. 
Now, he's the youngest of six kids. All of his siblings, very high-performing, top-of-their-field kind of folks. His mom and dad, I've met them multiple times. They're so sweet, generous, and caring, very well-respected in, in, in the community that he grew up in. And he said, my family never intentionally made me feel like I was less than. Never. But somewhere along the road, I started to believe that I wasn't enough. And he's like, I think that really took hold. And so when I'm watching this character of Mirabelle not, like, have those same kind of feelings, and then at the end of this movie, suddenly her grandmother realized, like, to her entire family, like, no, the, the miracle isn't these things that we do or don't do. The miracle is because you exist. He goes, it's just, it just sent me over the edge because it brought up this deep longing inside of me that I don't, I don't think I ever realized was there, that I just want to be enough. And not be enough, he's, he's, a, he's a Christ follower, understanding like, you know, we're, we're, we make mistakes, we, we, we have sin in our life, we, we, we do different things. Not enough because I'm human, I'm enough because I'm a child of God. That I'm enough because God is. What my friend was articulating is shame. This deeply, deeply held belief that tells us that we're unlovable, that we're unwanted, that we're too broken, that we're not enough. Shame, as a minister, one of the things that I see, I would argue that shame is the most significant driver for things like addiction, violence, eating disorders, depression, self-harm, narcissism, suicide, fear, and I would also argue that shame is Satan's greatest tool against God's beloved creation. As we continue in our series about cages, I want us to take a, an honest look at the cage of shame because I think the cage of shame is one that we all experience the most acutely and more times than not, we don't even realize that we're in it. Shame shows up pretty early on in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, the God of creation in the book of Genesis, we see him laying out his plan. We see his heart and his desire for his creation. And most of us, even if you don't go to church regularly, you weren't raised in church, you've heard the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, right? So before Adam and Eve decide to, to not listen to God, at this point, there's nothing to hide, there's nothing to fear, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. The writer of Genesis at the end of chapter 2 says they were naked and unafraid, just like a baby. But then what happens? God says, don't eat of that tree. This garden is yours to enjoy. This paradise is yours to enjoy. And Satan comes along, and we pick up at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took some of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. This is the first instance of shame that we see in Scripture. It is most certainly not the last. And a lot of times we'll hear this story, and people will be like, oh, okay, like, I don't understand the big deal. They, they now understand what's good and what's bad. Like, why is that the thing? No, the, the big problem was they, they disobeyed God. God gave them a directive, and they said, no, we're going to do our own thing. The other thing that, that I think all of us can relate to 
if we give ourselves enough time to think about it. And certainly what we see in Scripture is something happens when people come in contact with the living God. When they see how good, how holy, how strong, and how mighty the living God really is, all of our inadequacies that we think about ourselves suddenly become really clear. And what happens when we feel inadequate? We hide. We don't always consciously do it, but we've trained ourselves that when we feel, when we feel that we're too open, when we're too vulnerable, we hide. But it doesn't end there. We see God walking through the garden looking for Adam and Eve. He's calling to them, knowing full well what's already happened. And Adam finally calls out as he's hidden. We're, we hid because we're naked and we wanted to cover ourselves. And God says, How, who told you you were naked? Again, it's a rhetorical question. God knows. And then the other side of shame comes in that I think most of us, if not all of us, can relate with. We hide and then we blame. Adam goes, hey, remember that woman you made for me? This is her fault. It's her fault. She, she made me make the decision that I made to do the thing that you told me not to do. It's her fault. And Eva's like, hey, that, that serpent, Satan, it's his fault. He made me make the decision that I made to do the thing that I did. Shame creates this environment that just invites us to hide and to blame. And when you look around at our world, we see this time and time again. There are some important facts about shame we need to kind of understand. Uh, namely, shame and guilt are different things. And yes, they like to hold hands as they frolic and make out in the chaos of our life, but they are two separate things. Guilt is an emotion based on action. I have done something that I believe to be wrong. I feel guilty about it. Shame is a belief based on identity. Where guilt says, I have done something wrong, shame says, I am something wrong. Shame says I am unlovable. Shame says I am not enough. Where honest guilt, and I say honest intentionally, can lead to greater connection when we can understand that we've done something wrong and, and we confess and we make amends and we move on and we experience reconciliation, it builds a greater sense of connection. Shame always, unequivocally, leads to disconnection. When we don't deal with our guilt, shame will always take over. When we don't deal with our guilt, shame will always and very quickly take over. When we're growing up, there are two fundamental questions we are always looking for answers to. The first one is, who am I? And the second one is, am I valuable? Am I loved? And really, we, we keep asking that question as we grow up. And let's be, let's be real honest. For some of us in this room, for some of us watching at home, the people who were supposed to take care of us, that were supposed to protect us, that were supposed to speak value into our life and help us see the worth that we have, they did the opposite, right? We watched as our parent bailed. We watched as our parent blamed us 
for all the problems in their life. We watched or experienced violence and abuse of all different kinds. When you're a kid, what do you think that does to you? When you're an adult, what do you think that does to you? It just begins to speak into the very ethos of who we are that says, you're not enough. You are unlovable. And shame begins to latch on. And so before we move on to some other stuff, for those of you in this room and who are watching this morning or in the future, maybe no one has ever told you this before. Maybe you just need the reminder. It's not your fault that your dad left. It's not your fault that your parents got divorced. It's not your fault that someone blamed you for everything wrong in their life. It's not your fault that you were physically or emotionally or mentally or sexually abused. It's not your fault. When we get to a place where we're willing to deal with our guilt, it allows us to begin to tackle our shame. Now, there are a lot of us, again, in this room who have experienced people that almost intentionally has caused us harm where shame has been able to take hold. But I guarantee you that all of us have experienced the unintentional consequences of people that we looked to when we were younger to speak life into us, to show us our value. And yet somehow little snippets of shame crept in. If you were a kid, straight A student, and you came home all A's on your report card in one C and your parents only focused their attention on that one C, what do you think that told you? If you were an itty-bitty and it was bedtime and all you wanted was someone to lay down with you and read you a bedtime story, but they had to work, what do you think that's communicating? If you got cast in a play or you're on a sports team and there's the show and the game and your, your parents or your loved ones can't make it. If you're the seventh kid and all of your siblings get to play sports and have more toys because your family is just spread really thin now and there's not enough time and money as there once was. What do you think that's communicating to the core of who you are? Now, as adults, we understand, right? We understand that there are lots of reasons where complications of life that prohibit us from showing up in ways that we always want to. But as kids, we don't have the tools. We don't have the, the processes to be able to understand what's true and what's not. So although we feel loved and supported 80, 90, 95, 99% of the time, there's still that 1% that happens when we're kids that makes us go, oh, that's more important than me. I'm not good enough because I got a C. And shame begins to take hold. And when shame takes hold, it begins to dictate our beliefs and our behaviors. And I think it does this in four primary ways. First, we lose sight of the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei means the image of God. The reality that we are all created in the image of God and are designed to be in relationship with him. And because of that, that gives us intrinsic value and worth. I am enough because I am God's creation. I am enough because he is sufficient. I am enough because he is. 
For lack of a better term, this doctrine, this core belief of Imago Dei, it's first presented to us right before we read about Adam and Eve's first instance of shame. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That simple sentence is so profound that for thousands of years, people have been trying to unpack its significance. And we see this foundational idea of the Imago Dei from this verse all the way through the rest of Scripture, over and over and over again. The reality of how God shows up, what God says, what Jesus does, what Jesus says, the lasting implications of the church speak to the reality of the Imago Dei. This, <laughs> this unavoidable truth and fact is, is so ingrained in the richness and truth that we see in Scripture that something unbelievable has happened. Every denomination under the Christian umbrella actually agrees on it. I don't know if you've been around denominations before. They don't agree on anything. They just like to split hairs. This is like one of the few fundamental doctrinal ideas that, that all denominations agree on because you can't escape it when you read Scripture. You can't escape that we are made with the very fingerprints of God, that we are God's beloved creation. And when we can understand that, when we begin to internalize that, when we believe that, things begin to change in our lives. It changes how we treat people. It changes how we care for people, how we show up for them, what we think of them, how we speak of them. But it also changes how we think about ourselves. And it changes how we care for ourselves and how we speak of ourselves. When we internalize and believe this reality of the Imago Dei, it leads to healing, reconciliation, an experience of grace that, that many of us have never really experienced before. But when we are living out of a cage of shame, one of the first things to go is us being able to see the image of God in ourselves. And soon after that, our ability to see the image of God in others. When shame takes over, we isolate ourselves. We withdraw we withdraw and isolate because we begin to tell ourselves, I am going to be the safest I can be if I'm alone. That way, I can't be hurt again. That way, I can't hurt someone. And underneath that is this belief of what do I really bring to the table anyway? Now, sometimes withdrawing and isolation shows up in very physical and tangible ways. Like, we literally isolate ourselves in a house or a room and just ignore the world and just try and protect ourselves. More times than not, though, how this looks in, in our everyday life is that we've just found a lot of new ways to hide what's actually going on inside. One of the lines I hear often as a minister is, I have a lot of friends and family. I just don't feel like anyone really knows me. And I get it. I have said those very words myself. Multiple times in my life, I have said those words. And the reason they didn't really know me, I never gave them the opportunity to really know me. Because I made myself basically a rushing nesting doll. I existed somewhere, 
But it was underneath all kinds of different layers because I felt like I needed to protect myself against hurt, against pain, against fear, against all the other things. But here's the weird thing. There's a push and pull of this. Because the Imago Dei still exists, it's unavoidable. There's this push and pull that I still wanted validation. I still wanted connection. I still wanted someone to tell me that I'm okay, that I am worth it. So I would present myself in whatever way that I could so I could still seek the validation and the worth from other people and yet never actually allowing them to know me. We isolate ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. And it leads to continued disconnection, loneliness, and a belief that we're not enough. When shame takes over, we lean into avoidance. And avoidance looks a lot of different ways. I think one of the main ways it looks that's very visible, is unhealthy coping mechanisms. And let me be clear, there are very healthy coping mechanisms in life. Those things that we turn to, that we use to help us work through and navigate the pain and frustration and fears of life. And, and I want you to hear me when I say work through. <laughs> but there are a lot of unhealthy coping mechanisms, right? Where the intention is not to work through anything, the intention is to avoid the reality. Things like food, porn, sex, drugs, alcohol, work, TV, hobbies, accomplishments. Whatever we can do to avoid what we're actually feeling and thinking. Avoidance is something that I think shows up for all of us, but again, there's that push and pull of the Imago Dei. We still want connection. We still want validation. We can't let people know that we're avoiding the chaos of our lives. We can't let people know that we have this inkling inside of us that we're not good enough or unlovable or too broken. So we make ourselves look a certain way so that we can still interact with people. Joseph Burgo, in his article on narcissism for Psychology Today, said, when people suffer from an unbearable sense of shame, they often seek to elicit admiration from the outside as if to deny the internal damage. Beautiful outside versus ugly inside. Joseph Burgo, um, PhD. Avoidance ultimately takes many forms, but at its core, it's us doing what we can to ensure that we don't have to face our shame. When shame takes over, we lose sight of the Imago Dei. The moment we lose sight of the Imago Dei, we'll lean in to isolating ourselves. We'll lean into avoidance. And then finally, it ultimately leads to something that I think we see more prevalent now in our lives than maybe we have. We attack ourselves and others. It doesn't take much effort or time to see this reality. There's a reason <laughs> the saying, hurt people, hurt people, exists. Think about your own life. And maybe, maybe this doesn't happen often for you. Maybe it's, it's once in a great while. Maybe for you it's an everyday thing. But those moments in your life when you feel yourself so threatened or angry or hurt or disrespected or frustrated that your reaction is, I want to go to war and I want to destroy that person. What do you think is behind it? In those moments of your life when you just want to attack whether aggressively or passive-aggressively, when you want to make sure that they are lower than you so that you still feel like you have power and control, what do you think is behind that? When we lose sight of the Imago Dei, 
when we isolate ourselves, when we begin to avoid everything, we become like trapped animals in a cage, and the only response that we know is to lash out. Because that's the only way we think that we can protect ourselves. Bottom line, bottom line, if someone is ripping to pieces another's inherent value, dignity, and worth, odds are it's because they themselves don't feel like they have much value, dignity, or worth. I can't, in good conscience, talk about shame and not talk about the reality of Satan and the demonic influences that exist. Without question to me, shame is Satan's greatest tool against God's beloved creation. In talking with my wife, Leanne, about this message, and kind of sharing some thoughts and wrestling through things and asking her opinion, because she's, she's done a lot of work and continues to do a lot of work around shame in her own life, she shared some thoughts with me that I'd like to share with you. She said, if Satan can make me believe I'm not good enough, he knows I'll participate in the behaviors that keep me separate from others with whom I'm supposed to live in community and find healing. So maybe it's not me giving in to fear. Maybe it's me believing a lie that drives me to act in unproductive and harmful ways. So for believers, the question becomes, how do I stop believing the lie? How do I replace the false belief that, with truth so that I can begin to act in alignment with a new belief system grounded in God's truth and about who I am at my core? And that's the question, isn't it? How do we do this? And I don't know if we could really answer that question if we don't understand the real implications and danger that exist because of Satan. In the book of 1 Peter, we read, Be of sober mind, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded, meaning be free from the intoxicating things that blind us from the reality of Satan. It doesn't say don't have fun. It doesn't say don't laugh. It doesn't mean don't have, you know, enjoy your life. It's saying be aware because Satan wants to take you off the field. He wants to take you off the game board. Jesus himself tells us in John 10.10, the thief, meaning Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they could have life and have it abundantly. Listen, conviction, honest guilt is a gift from God. Conviction, honest guilt tells us, it helps us recognize we have done something wrong. We have acted in a way that is against our very core of how we were designed, of how we were raised, of what we know to be true, and we have caused hurt to ourselves, to a relationship to other people. Conviction is a beautiful gift. Condemnation is a curse that Satan uses to bash us in the face with at every moment he gets because he wants to do everything he can to strip away at the identity uh, that we are children of God, that we carry the Imago Dei. He wants you to believe that you're too broken. He wants you to believe that you're too far gone, that you have too many doubts. He wants you to think that the sacrifice doesn't matter. He wants you to think that you're unlovable, unredeemable, that you're unworthy, that you don't have value. He will always condemn and condone and just continue that cycle over and over again. We will feel this in ourselves. 
I'm not good enough. I have to prove myself. And we'll hear, you're right, you're not good enough. So you know what? Why don't you go do this thing over there? And so we do that thing thinking, well, maybe that'll prove something. Maybe that'll make me feel better. But we don't. We just still feel something's wrong, something's off, and we come back, and this is why I don't feel like I'm good enough, that something's not right, I need to prove myself, and Satan's right there going, that's right, you know what? You know what you need to do? You need to make yourself your own God. Because if you're your own God, then you can control and be in control of everything, and you can dictate what your life is going to be. And then we try that for a while, and we try and dictate what our life should be to everyone around us, and it doesn't matter the consequences. And then we realize that that is just as empty as anything else, and we just end up right back in the same place, condemning and condoning, condemning and condoning in this cycle over and over and over again until that is the only framework that we even know. Y'all, we just celebrated Easter the embodiment of hope. Where we see that Jesus hung on a cross, bearing its shame, bearing our shame for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have life and grace and the promise of being in his presence. Why would he do that? Why would he do that if we don't have value? Why would he do that if he didn't love us? Why would he do that if we don't have worth? I think one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture that I want to remind myself of every day is Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those that have surrendered their lives, who have chosen to follow him, be his disciple. We're not condemned. We're forgiven. And look, when you're far from God, when you've believed the lie that you should be your own God, or you think that your doubts are are too big, or that you have to clean your life up and be perfect before God will accept you, Condemnation is the only thing you're going to know. It's the equivalent of being in a cage of shame while also being shackled to the floor. And what we see time and time again in Scripture is that Jesus came to set the captives free. Is it hard sometimes? Yes. But isn't freedom worth it? For those of us that know that we are forgiven, let me ask you, why are so many of us still holding on to condemnation? We are in a cage, and literally the door is open. And I understand that sometimes our cages become our home, we become comfortable with them, and it becomes the only thing that we really know, and it seems scary because there might be work involved. And it may, it may mean that we have to face some stuff that might be really hard for us to face. But the door is open. In, in my little bit of remaining time I have left, I just, I want to give us four baby steps that any time we find ourselves in a cage of shame that we can lean on. And, and honestly, we see these through Scripture. <laughs> The first is we need to learn to identify it. 
We need to learn to identify our shame and call it what it is. There's a, there's a phrase called shame scripts. Understanding your shame scripts, those things that you tell yourself, the things that you believe about yourself, the things that you say out loud to other people where you're trying to be self-effacing and get a little bit of a chuckle, but you actually believe to your core. We have to be able to, to know what these are. And I want to read some of these to you this morning. Things like, I am unwanted. I'm an inconvenience. I'm too broken. If you really knew me, I don't think you'd like me. No one really cares about me. I deserve the bad in my life. I've got to be perfect. I just need things to be perfect. I've got to be the best. Because if I'm not the best, then that means I'm losing. I'm a disappointment to fill in the blank. If something goes wrong, it's probably my fault. I don't deserve respect or dignity. I'm ugly. I'm dumb. If I'm not achieving, who am I? I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. I'm unwanted. I have to have control. I've got to maintain control. I can't show weakness. No one wants to see that because if I'm weak, then who's going to be strong? It's just who I am and who I will always be. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not talented enough. I am not enough. These are all things that we tell ourselves. These are all things that we believe about ourselves. And we may not believe all of them. We only may have one of these things. You might have your own list. But we have to be able to identify the shame scripts in our life and call it what it is. It is a line that we are saying, this is who I am. And, the, and, and here's the thing with lies that we believe. The most effective lies are the ones that have a kernel of truth, right? Because the reality is, of my own and my own mistakes and devices, I'm not enough. I am enough because God is. I am enough because I am his creation. Why do I feel like I need to be in control? Is that really true across the board? No, not necessarily, but I know what it feels like to be in control because that feels safe for me. So because that feels safe in that one moment, it must be true all the way across the board. We have to be able to identify our shame scripts so that we can face our shame. Lisa Turkhurst, in her podcast, Therapy and Theology, which, by the way, is a fantastic podcast, highly recommend it, she says, the line we tell ourselves becomes a label. The label becomes a lie, and the lie becomes a liability in how we think about ourselves and interact in every future relationships. This is what happens. We have these shame scripts in our life, and it could be whatever one you want or multiple. If you really knew me, that's the, the line I'm telling myself, which becomes the label, which is me telling myself, no one is really going to like me if they really knew me, which is a lie that I now believe. And because that's a lie that I believe, that is how I am going to show up in the world around me. Except oftentimes it's not just one, one line and label and lie that we're believing. Sometimes it's, it's a lot, right? 
We have to be able to identify our shame scripts and then face our shame. Because look, shame is a freaking parasite. It is the zombie apocalypse of belief systems. It is that weird fungus from the last of us that is just going to mutate and take over everything. That is what it does. It's always going to want more. And when we keep it in the dark and we don't deal with it, when we don't face it, it's just going to own us. We've got to be able to bring it into the light. We've got to be able to poke and prod. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's really uncomfortable. If you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Why do I think that about myself? Where did that start? Was it because of this? Was it because of that? Poke, prod, examine, think about your thinking of why you're believing these things. And maybe that looks like you're using a professional counselor, which... Awesome. I love counselors. Like, being able to go into someone's office who I'm not friends with and just be like, here, all over them, it's awesome. I mean, paying them sucks, but like the rest of it's great. People that are trained to look at the hurts and pains of your life and help you unravel the knot that exists inside of you, wonderful. For some of us, maybe, maybe, it's not, maybe we don't have super deep wounds that we need addressing, that we need really someone that is trained to do these things. Maybe we just need three or four people who know us, who we can be fully vulnerable with, and we know that no matter what, they are going to continue to remind us of the Imago Dei in us, that they're going to continue to remind us that we are loved and valued and have worth. Maybe it's a mix of both. Either way, we have to be able to face it. We have to poke and prod even when it's uncomfortable. We have to own what we need to own because the guilt that we have that goes unaddressed is only going to lead to shame. There are things that you need to own. There are things that, that you've done that have hurt you, that have hurt other people, that have hurt relationships that instead of dealing with, you've really probably just beaten yourself up about it because this is the tricky thing about our minds. We'll think if we beat ourselves up about it, about something we've done wrong, that we've taken responsibility. And really, it's our brain's sneaky way of avoiding responsibility. Because you haven't taken ownership of anything. You've just beaten yourself up and made yourself feel worse. Understand your shame scripts. Face your shame. Examine it. Own what you need to own. And then finally, believe fact over feeling. And what I mean by that is this. Feelings are not a bad thing. Feelings are beautiful. They tell us things. They communicate things. But what we feel is not always the honest truth. Take anger, for example. I've shared with you before, I, I deal with anger. It's something I'm constantly dealing with. Anger is a presenting emotion. I get angry because something that someone did, and I go, now everyone has to deal with my anger. But in reality, underneath that anger is I feel hurt. I feel disrespected. Someone I love or respect said something that made me feel like I just don't matter to them at all. Feelings are not always the best gauge of what is true. Believing fact over feeling, I think, tangibly and practically, looks like us intentionally changing the script. When we can identify our shame in our lives, when we can call it for what it is, and we face it 
and we examine it, and we unpack it, and we own what we need to own, let's replace the script with a new one. And I know no better place than what God himself and Jesus himself has said about us. And so to close, I just want to read some things over you. That for those that have surrendered their lives to Christ and are following him, of how our creator views you, how Jesus views you. And I pray, truly, I pray that the spirit of God would burn these truths onto your heart and your soul and your mind. Because the reality is we're always gonna find ourselves back in a cage of shame from time to time. But that isn't where we need to stay. And I think we need to be reminded of how God really views his creation. You are a child of God. You are worthy of respect and dignity. You are a new creation. You are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are needed. You are needed. And you are beautiful. You're not defined by your past. You are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are capable of change. You are forgiven. You are more valuable than the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish in the sea and all of the riches in this world. You are free from condemnation. You are enough. You are enough. You are enough because you are a child of God. You are enough because he is. 